when people are in a state of confusion, there's always somebody who will come in and, and tell you how to do it. And I think you're alluding to that in some of the articles. People, yes, in essence, urging people to, well, just screw the boss, quiet. Right? Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a patient interview, case presentation, or interview or discussion with one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at ergonomy.org. The best way to help the American College of Ergonomy spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. If you're interested in training with the ACO, you can learn more about the medical organ therapy or social ergonomy training programs. You can connect with us and learn more at ergonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. This episode features an interview with Dr. Peter Christ about the concept of quiet quitting. He describes to me how he sees it and in his characteristic way goes below the surface and gets to the heart of the problem. Dr. Christ, I'm very happy to be talking with you today. I've been seeing this idea of quiet quitting everywhere I look, and I immediately thought of you as the person to go to to help me understand it because I thought of the presentations you gave at the ACO before we were doing webinars. Um, we were having the public come hear um, some presentations, and, and you gave, I think, three or four great ones about looking at work life. And it, it's interesting because I, I'm reading numerous newspaper articles, and they keep talking about quiet quitting. And I actually am not seeing it with my patients, but with some acquaintances in my private life, I, I am hearing about it. And I'll give you one example. There's a young um, uh, guy in finance, and he told me that because they can monitor if he's working from home, because they can monitor if you're active or not, he mm -hmm. figured out that if he if he puts something heavy on the space bar, then it looks like he's active. And so he can get away with doing something else. Yeah. So, Dr. Chris, I'm really excited to hear how you're looking at quiet quitting. So, um, I'm glad that you um, alerted me to, to looking at it. I'd been hearing about it myself. A friend of mine uh, mentioned it uh, to me um, probably just in the last month, and I had not heard that term before. And in fact, after you asked me to um, look at this with you, I, I went back and uh, looked it up, and it doesn't even appear in the dictionary, um, uh, even the slang dictionary, before about July of this year. So I think before we even uh, go further with it, some people may not have even heard the term, others have heard it. I wasn't clear what, what people were referring to, so why don't we just start off uh, defining it? So do you have a good definition we can use? <laughs> Yeah, there are lots of different definitions. So let me just pull up one article. This is from this article is from the World Economic Forum website. It's by Victoria Masterson from September 2nd. What is quiet quitting? Quiet quitting is the art of not taking work too seriously, mostly used by Gen Z workers who have helped the term go viral on TikTok. 
Yeah, that was my understanding is, is uh, there was someone, and I think one of the articles you mentioned, um, there was a guy on TikTok who did a whole thing that just went absolutely viral. Um, uh, yeah, let me see if I can pull that up. So that's, um, so there's an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, on August 12th, and it references that TikTok. The title is, if your coworkers are quiet quitting, here's what that means. So this, this man, uh, Zaid Khan, a 24-year-old engineer in New York, posted a quiet quitting video that racked up 3 million views in two weeks. He explained the concept this way. You're quitting the idea of going above and beyond. You're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. Okay, so I mean, again, we're already into looking at at uh, both positive and negative aspects about it, and I hope that that's something we can really flesh out uh, talking today. Um, and and do you have a sense of some other um, particular articles? Because I remember um, you mentioned uh, several to me. So um, one that was really striking to me was. Um, the Epoch Times has an article that references the Gallup poll, and, it, and it's the title is 50% of, Amer- of the American workforce are quiet quitters. Quiet quitters, employees who strictly stick to the job descriptions and do only the bare minimum required of their tasks, now make up the majority of the U.S. workforce, according to the latest Gallup survey. And not only that, it said 50%, but it actually mentioned that there was another 25% who were um, disengaged from their work. And it basically painted a picture that only 25 or one quarter of the population is actively engaged and yeah. excited about their work. Yeah, yeah. And and to me, that's uh, astounding and tragic. Because, and, and that's where we get to um, what I was mentioning, both the positive and negative sides is there's been a problem with people having work become drudgery and getting burnt out, being pushed too much. Uh, so there's something positive about, um, and, and it really came in, I think, with the millennials wanting to have meaning in their work. They were not willing to just do something because they were told uh, as a generation more than the, the baby boom generation. And and so, you know, that's a positive side somehow is there's, there's a problem that we need to, to solve. Um, but then the negative side is, is like people are trying to see what they can do to get away with as little as possible, which to me is if you're spending more than at least eight hours a day uh, working, it's a major part of everybody's life. And to have that be um, uh, just drudgery that let me see what I can get away with to me is a tragic waste of people's lives. And again, I think we as ergonomists have a lot to offer in terms of looking at that question. You're right. It is tragic. And I think what you also alluded to was in these articles and and, and commentary about quiet quitting, there, there's this heavy moralistic uh, feeling about how people are looking at it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That struck me too. in some of the things I was looking at, you're, you're either good if you're quiet quitting or, or bad if you're quiet quitting. And, um, but it, it's, it, 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 as soon as you're into a moralistic approach, you're, you're not just looking at what's going on, particularly what's going on emotionally. And to me, uh, that's something that we need to absolutely find a way to address. So in, in what you've been reading, I, I, I've heard a number of things, but uh, do you have a sense of why, uh, from what you've read, why this has come up so uh, pointedly right now? 
So there, there's a lot of um, pointing to the pandemic, but the way I'm hearing it, it, it hasn't been stated exactly, but it feels like it's been festering and then it kind of uh, came to the surface, yeah. maybe because of the pandemic. But but it, that reminds me, there's this wonderful article by Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute from August 26th. Mm-hmm. And so his article is called The Why of Quiet Quitting. And he says, the roots of quiet quitting precede lockdowns. Back then, there was a sudden focus on work-life balance. I will be just blunt. I despise the phrase. It's rooted in some strange Marxist supposition that life is somehow different from and completely at odds with work. Work then is rooted in some kind of, it's some kind of alienation from life. Someone is forced by unjust and artificial institutions that probably deserve to be overthrown. So that reminded me of something you mentioned before. So, so tell me, how, yeah. how do you hear that article? Well, uh, when I did read that article, and and uh, it, it was one of those moments of, ah, somebody has has um, sort of validated or or uh, reinforced, uh, come back to uh, exactly how I look at things. And so uh, you mentioned the talks that I gave in the social economy presentation series uh, about work, and we. We started those in uh, February of 2013 uh, with probably, I think, our best attended talk uh, ever. And um, uh, the title was, Are You Satisfied With Your Work Life? And that's really sparked a chord for people. We had a very, very uh, good, um, uh, productive discussion among the audience members uh, at that talk. Then I did a series um, every year. The next one was, are you satisfied with your work relationships? Then I did one on um, the the next year on uh, negotiating work politics. And then I happened to be out in Chicago. Uh, We were visiting uh, my wife's family and our nephew uh, had just gotten a new job. And I thought, what would I do for the next one in February? And I said to him, you know, I've been doing these talks about work and what would you as a young person want to hear about? He said, well, everybody's talking about work-life balance. And I thought, okay, let me do one on that. And as soon as I sat down to um, talk about it, I mean, to start thinking about it, to get ready to do the presentation, I realized, wait a minute, work-life balance acts as if work isn't a part of life, exactly what what, uh, Jeffrey Tucker was saying. And then I realized, um, well, going back to Reich's famous um, quotation, love, work, and knowledge are the wellsprings of our life. They should also govern it. I thought, well, love and work are really the the two aspects of our life that we need to find a way to balance. And I think that's what people are are troubled with. My work has taken over my whole life, so I don't have um, the rest of my life for my family, for my uh, mate, uh, uh, other people that I want to just spend time with because I love them. And so I thought, okay, I'll do um, uh, a talk on work-love balance. And I started putting together some slides and it was like this balancing beam of love <laughs> and work. And I said, wait a minute, that's, you know, if, if you have too much work over here, that means you got to reduce the work in order to get a balance. Well, it, I have found that it seems like if your work life is going really well, uh, it can support your love life. And if your love life is going well, that actually uh, uh, 
supports and, and makes work much more satisfying. So even though it was too late to change the title of my talk, I realized what it's really about is work-love integration. How well do those two aspects of our life uh, really function together? Mm. And so in, in the process of, of looking at that and work problems, uh, uh, what I've really you know, has gotten clear to me is the problem is people have lost contact uh, with their joy at work. And, and I ran across a book by Dennis Bakke by that title. And uh, it's probably one of the best books people could read um, about how to find some way to be sure that you uh, have passion in your work. Mm. And, um, so we'll get into uh, you know more of uh, of that. I think is going to be very important to look at what what has happened. Uh, you know that people have so much trouble uh, maintaining excitement in in their work. Yeah. Do you have um, from the patients you're working with? Do you have any um, patients who are struggling with that now, or? Yes. Yeah. There, there, uh, I mean, uh, there are a lot of people. Fortunately, somehow my practice developed in a way that, that many of the people I work with are uh, either creative types or um, independent business people doing something that, that they really uh, love. And in fact, um, looking at that uh, article on um, uh, World Economic Forum that defined quiet quitting. They had a reference, uh, a term that, again, was something new, but um, I, I had not seen it before. The future of work is the passion economy. And I thought, oh, okay, they're actually talking about what uh, uh, we're talking about, that it's possible for people to have uh, passion about what they're doing. And interestingly, it seems both the millennials and um, the Gen Z uh, members, as much as people want to um, disparage them, oh, they have no work ethic, they are far more interested in, I want to do something meaningful. I want to do something that matters to me and makes a difference. And, and that's an absolutely... Uh, that's not a problem. It's <laughs> not a problem to me. That's that's what we need to be uh, working towards. So this idea that that there's some new phenomenon of quiet quitting um, is is also interesting. It's like people come up with something, but this this is not this is really nothing new. Um, and um, looking at it, uh, one of the articles mentioned. Um, Herman Melville's book that, that was published in a story that was published in 1853. I think it's called Bartlesby Scrivener, a story of Wall Street about a lawyer who hires a new clerk. And that clerk um, is very excited about doing the work he's assigned. And then at some point, the lawyer assigns him not just to do the clerking work, but to do proofreading. And the Bartlesby responds, I'd prefer not to. <laughs> and that then becomes what the whole story is about, is that consistently, so in 1853, here we had a Wall Street clerk quiet quitting. Um, <laughs> he stayed on the job and his boss could not get rid of him because he, you know, was still there. I mean, it's a very interesting story about yeah. how 
uh, you know, personal and work boundaries got all mixed up. So, so the idea of this is a brand new uh, phenomenon um, uh, is it, important to underscore. It's really nothing new. It's a new name that yeah. are putting you know, to an old. It does also make me think of, I have an older patient, he's about 73, and talking about his work now that he's retired, there was a strong aspect of duty in him that I think even if he had the impulse to quiet quit, mm-hmm. uh, over overrode it, um, and, and that seems to be some change in the um, the generations where where maybe they had those impulses to find something, but they had some difficulty in being able to to find their passion, and so they kind of just put their head down and, and grinded it out. Yeah, yeah, because my wife is. Um, uh, been in in the acting field. Uh, there's so many people that I've gotten to know as actors that the the standard line is is well, I I do my acting, but I have my day job, and and so that's again nothing new. Um, you know, creative people uh, have often felt like, well, I got to do something for money, um, and uh, uh, I'm I'm. Blanking on his name, a, a famous educator uh, who gave a, a talk back in um, a graduation talk uh, decades ago, and, and he spelled it out to me very nicely. He said, there are jobs, careers, and work. He said, a job is what you do for money. A career is a series of such jobs. But work is what you would do whether you were paid for it or not. It's your, it's your work. And the ideal thing is to find a way to um, be paid for your work. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that that concept, um, you know, I, I think underscores a lot of what this whole um, controversy is about. Yeah. And one thing I, I also don't want to overlook is that some of the articles really seem to um, maybe take someone reading the article who may be lacking satisfaction in their work and and it really seems like, you know, egging them on to to screw the boss. Have, have you felt that? Have you read that? Yeah. Yes, I, I I certainly felt that um, in uh, from the tone of the article. So, I think you've now touched on one of the I think the crucial um, things is uh, as doctors we were taught whether most doctors consistently do it or not we're taught. Um, identify the problem before you uh, make a, uh, a solution or come up with a solution. So diagnose before you treat as doctors. And here is a problem. And it's like somebody has come up with the treatment for it, which is quiet quitting rather than digging into, but what is this basic problem? Mm-hmm. And I, I really think it comes back to um the difficulty people have in in staying with their um, with their emotional uh, excitement and and their passion, and I you know I think one of the things we have to offer as organomists is the understanding that that these things really go back to what we call armoring the people's inability to tolerate their own uh, emotions and. Um, uh, if you look at Dr. Baker's book, Man in the Trap, his chapter on armoring, if you look at the origin of armoring, he um, refers to uh, Reich's um, 
uh, analysis of it in The Murder of Christ, but Baker goes into it in detail. The story of Genesis is really the story of the development of armor and people's uh, loss of contact with their own internal Eden, their own natural capacity uh, for pleasure. And the capacity, the work, to love. So all the things that Reich referred to, love, work, and knowledge, so the natural capacity to just uh, find pleasure in those. And I, 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 I put together, um, I, I dug out the, the quote from the Bible, because I, I, I don't know, that, that bit, uh, the, the Genesis story, people consistently look at that as the loss of, of um, uh, um, connection and the development of se uh, sexual shame and the focus is on the sexuality. But uh, right in Genesis, there's almost, uh, there's more written about um, the effect on Adam in terms of work than on Eve in terms of, of her. Really? Yes. So huh. I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote the Bible here. So this is the <laughs> okay. King version. And this is after, um, uh, uh, so this is God talking to Adam, and, and he says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herbs of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Now, if that isn't a story of work becoming uh, drudgery instead of uh, just living naturally without some uh, separation between um, love and work, I, I don't know what that story is about. But, mm. So... Wow. To me, <laughs> our, our problem is exactly uh, that. Um, and you said uh, one of one of the uh, I've had a number of patients in therapy long enough, so I've now um, had a number of people who had productive lives and who then um, uh, decided to retire. And that's an area people talked about that for a long time, but that's an area where um, people go from uh, the earlier generations, as you said, there's a tendency for people to do things out of duty. Um, and we can uh, talk ab uh, about that some, but I think one of the key things that, that needs to be mentioned here is there's been that major transformation in our society from authoritarian to anti-authoritarian. And the authoritarian tendency was an authority tells you what to do, you do it, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And that has broken down, really, uh, starting in the early 50s, but really uh, peaking in by the, the 60s, the anti-authoritarian attitude. So part of what I think we're reaping now are the effects of longer-term aspects of that. And um, you know, there are people who decry, oh, we should go back to the good old days, you know, <laughs> at work ethic. As if everything was perfect back As then. Right? Everything was perfect then. We know it wasn't. And you can't go backwards. We can only go forward. And to me, that's actually one of the hopes that we have to offer is going forward in a way uh, 
where we can now say, okay, what do you really want to be uh, doing? And uh, the, the three layers of people's emotional structure that I've put the names nature that we're born with, the character that we develop and the personality, the facade we present to the world um, apply not just in terms of our love lives, but they apply in terms of our work lives. So I do a lot of work with people on trying to identify what is your work nature. So this one guy who was a college professor um, had retired and he was struggling with, you know, what what did he want to be doing? And um, what we were able to bring out is that one of his basic um, uh, things that brought him satisfaction no matter what he did was seeing uh, the, the development of someone's um, ability to learn. So mm. he actually started writing a book and, and looking at the research on how people learn. And I said, you know, where else does that apply besides as a professor? And he realized, well, he's, he's also an avid bird watcher and uh, getting together with um, other birders, just helping them learn how to learn about birds. Um, he was using that basic natural uh, aspect of his work nature. Oh, wow. One of the things that I, I'm sensing is coming out of this whole um, problem that, that um, I, the way Je Jeffrey Tucker put it in that article, it didn't, quiet quitting didn't start with the pandemic. But I do believe the pandemic really intensified all kinds of aspects in, in everybody's life, both, yes. both in our love lives and our work lives. So all kinds of things uh, have come to a head uh, just recently. Yes. So. And so <clears throat> if someone's not in their own therapy, if someone's, you know, finds themselves that they're looking at, am I quiet quitting? Am, am I, you know, withdrawing? Am I struggling with this? I'm curious what, what you might say to them or what you might leave with them to how to look at it for themselves or their family members. Yeah. Um, as I mean, one of the basic things that we're always looking at is, is life is actually a natural, spontaneous process. And, and our understanding of what work is um, uh, I, I think I don't, I'm not aware of any other discipline that really understands it. Um, I think the simplest way I would define it, it that, is that work is a natural, spontaneous biological function. And to understand that people need to work, and the way I imagine that is it's uh, in every biological aspect. Every time sap moves up a tree, it's moving. Uh, 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 something forward. And I go back to the physics definition of work is work is force times distance. So every time something moves forward, work is being done. Every time a child, a, a baby finally stands up or is able to crawl across the room, they're doing work. Yeah. Do they do that um, with pleasure? Do they do that, uh, um, you know, uh, as a baby, they, they, they still are in uh, contact with that natural joy. They just work. <laughs> they just work without, without having to think about it. So uh, that's reminded me of, of, of a story that I might uh, want to read uh, uh, that came up in my memoir story. But before 
um, let's see if we do, I do that. What, what you said is, what would I say to people? Um, and to me, there, there are two really, really important aspects of all of this. One is that understanding you need to work. And if you don't work, your energy literally is going to become uh, static and you're going to develop what we call stasis, where the energy gets stale uh, and backs up and you don't feel good. Um, and uh, so I, I, I tell people uh, you need to find something to keep yourself moving, to get moving forward. And to, to me, that's one of the serious problems with what happened during the pandemic where people literally were paid for not working. And what happened to their work energy? It had to build up in stasis. Right. I think it's probably not accidental that there were riots and, and violent demonstrations that occurred when people were locked down and didn't have a natural outlet for their work energy. So again, the, the, it, how I would diagnose the problem is that people have lost contact with their natural uh, spontaneous uh, impulse to work uh, out of joy to work um, productively. And so um, people can either um, withdraw and, and uh, not act on that and quiet quit, uh, or they can find something uh, that they're passionate about and um, the, again, the problem is if people are pushing themselves in a drudgery kind of way, uh, they will burn out. Because yeah. if you're doing something that comes spontaneously out of you, out of passion, you don't get burnt out. And, Which and interestingly is what we were talking about before quiet quitting became the thing. Burnout was, was big in the news. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so to me, there, there are the two sides of this phenomenon of, well, there's the, the negative side where people are just um, quiet quitting, you know, people get moralistic about that side. The other side is uh, people are more or less, well, how dare the boss tell me what to do when, when uh, it's not what I want to do. And uh, again, every time there's that kind of confusion, if you don't, separate out what is rational in in this action so what's rational about quiet quitting what's rational about not quiet quitting you're opening the door to people coming in to um, try to take control to manage things uh, what we call the emotional plague the destructive reactions uh, in in human life mm. and and i think that's very important to underscore is, is when people are in a state of confusion, there's always somebody who will come in and, and tell you how to do it. And I think you're alluding to that in some of the articles, people yes. in essence urging people to, well, just screw the boss, quiet, quit. Yeah. So you mentioned a, a story from your memoir. I'm curious to, to hear about that. Okay, I, I would be glad to read that um, because I think it may also um, just, um, uh, underscore uh, and and lead us into a bit more discussion about it. So um, the, the title is Murder in the Sandbox. When my daughter was two years old, I took her to the park. A number of kids were playing in the sandbox with parents hanging out around the edge. 
While Tara Balance walked along the edge of the sandbox, one little boy was building a pile of sand, not elaborate enough to call a castle yet. He made at least a dozen trips to retrieve sand that for some reason, unclear to me, he liked better than the sand near where he'd started his pile. He beamed as he carried spoonful after spoonful while he danced across the sandbox. I watched the boy's pile grow bit by bit. On one of his trips back to his source of sand, he pointed his spoon to a man reading a book. See, Daddy, I'm building a special sand castle. The father looked up. I can see you found some special sand over here that you really like. The boy nodded as he squatted to dig up another spoonful. The father handed him a plastic bucket that had been lying in plain sight the whole time while the boy mined his preferred sand. Here, Evan, use this. It'll be more efficient. Evan looked puzzled, but eased the bucket down by the little hole he'd been excavating and began shoveling sand into it with his spoon. The father said, here, I'll help you. He picked up the toy shovel. Let me show you how to use this. It'll be much quicker. Soon the father had filled the bucket, which he handed to his son. Now you can get much more of your special sand to the other side and build a really big castle. With a look of determination, and no trace of the earlier dance in his step, Evan lugged the bucket of sand across the sandbox and dumped it near his castle to be. His father said, see, isn't that much quicker? Evan gave a few perfunctory pats to shape the pile of sand that now dwarfed his earlier castle. Then he jumped up and ran for the swings. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And you call it murder in the sandbox. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You know, it's hearing that is exciting because I can picture this little boy just having a wonderful time. And yet it's sad to hear that not only did the father already start adding in this idea of efficiency and, and productivity, but what really stands out is I don't think he had any clue what was going on. Yeah, that, that was absolutely clear to me at the time. And so to me, this story uh, just, it, it hit me at the time. And then when I came back to it and, and wrote it, I realized, my God, that is really the story of what happens to so many of us in our work lives, you know, that, that, uh, it shows that work is a natural, spontaneous process. This kid, you know, just doing it out of joy, and that we're born with that natural joy in work, and that the natural impulse to have joy in our work uh, gets disturbed when someone else compels us to to work, tells us how to do it, or does it for us. And I think that part needs to be underscored, and and also just the understanding that, uh, as, as I said, attempts at uh, you were saying attempts at efficiency uh, can actually interfere with productivity and that when work becomes drudgery, um, we lose our natural uh, joy in it. And, and I think the point you were making, uh, bosses with the best of intentions can uh, undermine their workers' uh, uh, joy in, in, in their employees' work. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, to me, again, as I said, the problem is that the, the problem in human life that goes back uh, all the way to the beginning of, probably the beginning of civilization as the Genesis story, 
uh, tells us that um, there gets to be a disconnect between our natural functions of love, work, and knowledge and our pleasure in them. You know? Yeah. And anything that we can do to help people um, see that as a problem and uh, see that it doesn't have to be that way. And, and I actually, to me, that's some of what's encouraging reading, um, you know, that, that concept of, of uh, passion economy. That's exactly what they're talking about. They're yeah. Saying more Gen Z people. That, that, one of the things in that article was fascinating to me that they said the the highest aspiration, the most frequent um, response to a survey about what people aspired to do was YouTuber. <laughs> more than being a movie star. Wow. And and I, I realized, you know, so that's an example of people potentially doing something very constructive. I have a 14-year-old uh, kid who's diagno diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum, and he's actually really quite brilliant. And just this last Friday, he, he had told me, that that um, uh, a couple weeks ago, well, I started doing videos. I I started a YouTube channel. This last Friday, in his um, funny way that he has, he, he said, "I have 500 subscribers on my YouTube channel. <laughs> all the kids at work want me to make YouTube's. All the kids at school want me to make make YouTube's of them. So here's this presumably um, very." Um, troubled kid. I mean, yes, he has his problems, but he has found something that he's now passionate about that helps him get out of his introversion, helps him mm -hmm. with other people. And he said, yeah, I got a tripod. And he picked up and showed me on the on the video the tripod he'd gotten so I can make them look much more professional. He said, let me show you. And he hooked his phone that he was using for the video session with me up to it, set it down, and it was absolutely still against the gray background of the wall of his bedroom. And, and I said, it looks absolutely professional. The lighting is perfect. He said, well, that's just natural light. And I, I said, no, you, you, you got it. You know exactly how to make them look. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So that's just a, a, a little example, I think, of, of um, you know, as I said, people tend to decry, oh, you know, the changes of how horrible things are. But I, I'm a born optimist. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. I, I really do see, you know, if we can continue to work to make people aware of the destructive tendencies that interfere, um, the natural tendency for life is going to come forward. And, yeah. Well, what I'm hearing, Dr. Chris, is you saying for someone listening, maybe just taking a fresh look at, at their work situation and, and seeing what is getting in the way. And, and, and maybe that. Um, yes. yeah. Yeah. To, to me, that's if we understand life and work as something spontaneous, we don't have to make anything happen. We really have to see what we can do to remove the, the logs in the log jam. So just somebody becoming aware of, huh. Something's in the way here, uh, and and I have found that you know very useful with many. That, when people ask me, you know, what what should I do when I retire? Uh, it's some form of that same response of, what's in the way of you being clear? Mm -hmm. 
Dr. Chris, this has been a pleasure. I, I really appreciate this time to hear how you're looking at it. And, and I'm sure the audience does too. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, um, nothing uh, comes to mind at the moment, but there's just so much in this, in this whole topic. So I really appreciate you uh, asking me to talk about it. I feel like we've just scratched the surface, but I think that's, uh, that's good for now, just to make people aware of it that there's another way to look at these things. It's not quiet quitting is good, quiet quitting is bad. It's not a moral question. It's what's really going on under the surface with people's work lives. Thank you, Dr. Christ. You're welcome. Thank you. How do you feel after listening to this interview? What do you think? I sincerely hope that people who are struggling with their work lives are able to take a step back and look at the situation and find something that works for them without becoming moralistic or destructive. I hope they're able to identify what's ever blocking their satisfaction, whether in themselves or their current situation, and move forward. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at organomy.org. If you learned something or enjoyed the podcast, I hope you'll consider leaving a rating and review. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you share this podcast with your friends and family and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at organomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Ergonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical organ therapy, as practiced by the physicians at the ACO, offers a way forward, often without the use of medication.